Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. I'm very excited about today's show and to share with you a woman who is a spiritual teacher and guide for many people around the world who... I really resonate with her and her work, and I'm excited about sharing her with you. Her name is, I hope I get the name pronunciation right, Omoda Ma. Did I get it right? Yes. That's great. And um, I found out about Omoda several months ago. I don't know how I did it, but uh, I loved her energy and her authenticity and her wisdom and her love, and so I started checking her out and I was kicking the tires, and I liked what was under the hood. And so uh, I'm excited to share her with you and a couple of comments before we get into it. One is that um, there is a very good interview with the Modama by Rick Archer. Actually, he's done two of them, and I've listened to the second one on Buddha at the gas pump, and so I don't want to repeat a lot of that material. So I would recommend that to you. And also, she has a YouTube channel where she has wonderful videos as well. So hopefully, this interview will uh, build on all the wonderful material that's already out there that I would highly recommend. So without further ado, I welcome Amodama to the the show. Hello, David. Thanks for, for hosting me here and having this conversation. My pleasure. So uh, just one thing I want to tell the listeners, uh, I, I had the flu a couple of weeks ago, and ever since that, I've had this really irritating drip, a post-nasal drip, so my throat is a little raw, and so I may speak a little softer than usual, or I might cough a little bit, but uh, otherwise I feel fine. So Amoda, as you know, one of the things that makes this show different from a lot of other shows where there's interviews is that we do in-depth interviews here. The average interview here is about an hour and a quarter long and some go even longer. And so I'm committed to rehabilitating the lost art of the in-depth interview. And uh, so one of the things I found works really well in the beginning of the interview is to turn the show over to my guests and to give that person some time to introduce themselves and tell their story in a purposeful way that creates a context so that when we start talking about your current work, there's a bonding with the viewer and listener, and there's also a framework for understanding. So let me just turn the show over to you for a while and go ahead and kind of take that story any way that you'd like. Well, my story, um, I'm just going to start by saying, you know, these days it's, I have to dig deep to actually pull the threads of my story together Um, because it really is, and I know it's a cliche, it really is like a dream. (laughs) It's, um, it it doesn't have uh, 
any juice to it anymore. It doesn't have any hooks in it anymore. It doesn't have much substance to it. Um, so, so I'm going to try and dig deep here and pull a few thre thre threads together. Um, when I look back, and I'm going to go right back to childhood, um, my story is one of suffering. Uh, there were many traumas right from birth. There were many shocks in my life. Um, there were many sudden changes, unexpected changes, dramas, uh, shocks that were that really took the the the, the ground from from beneath me, in the sense that I never knew who my father was. Uh, uh, I didn't know that my father wasn't my real father till I was thirteen. The circumstances of being told um, that he wasn't my father came at a very dramatic time in a dramatic way that created trauma none of it ha was held um, my mother experienced a lot of shocks a lot of losses as I as I went through my childhood um, there was alcoholism in the family there was uh, sexual abuse there was emotional abuse there was some physical violence uh, there was a war. Uh, I lived uh, uh, in a small, on a small island in the Mediterranean for a couple of years, even though I was brought up in England, where there was a, a war, a sudden war in 1974, which as a 13-year-old, I was very traumatized by um, the bombing, the proximity of it, um, the evacuation that happened where we lost all our possessions. Um, I mean, literally everything that we owned. I, I arrived with my parents back in England um, with a, a wearing a pair of shorts, uh, a small skimpy t-shirt and a pair of flip-flops my mother's shoes were broken so she couldn't walk properly um, it was very dramatic so that's the history of my life um, as I grew up into late teens and then early adulthood um, I think that trauma got embedded it was never addressed either by my parents who then were no, no, I was no longer living with and they had divorced under very difficult circumstances. Um, uh, none of it was addressed in any way. So I went to um, continue my studies, uh, academic studies, and found myself, rather than feeling the freedom of, of leaving home and, and all that uh, drama and trauma, um, found myself very depressed um, to the point that there were several suicide attempts. So my inner world was very, very dark. Uh, my outer circumstances were unstable and uh, not particularly supportive, but it was more the inner world by that time had become a very barren place. But I had no insight. I had no willingness to look within and ask the right questions and unpack that trauma and explore anything. So I get sent from psychiatrist to psychologist, but nobody could penetrate the 
the thick wall that insulated me from feeling anything. Um, So I became very, excuse me, very caught up in my head, very academic. Um, And even though I was uh, following uh, a path of psychology, and had uh, a philosophical interest in some of the existential issues of psychology. I, 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 I ended up, um, as luck would have it, in a very uh, scientific and experimental branch of psychology, which, which didn't serve me either. It just supported this inability to really look within. And yet that, that was what my, my soul was craving for. So it all culminated with a, <clears throat> a big uh, uh, emotional crash, mental crash, perhaps a spiritual breakthrough, you could call it, at the age of 28, um, where my whole academic career collapsed, which was actually very successful on, on, the, in, 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 on the external um, level in what I was doing and what I was achieving, it all, it all crashed. Um, and I dropped out at the very last minute of achieving my doctorate, which was my whole life's focus. Um, my personal life collapsed and I found another uh, point of existential black hole. Um, again, with a, with a very strong pull tendency to, to turn towards uh, you know, suicide to take my own life I didn't and something else happened which is where something opened up through a combination of uh, lucky circumstances one was um, uh, long distance running which my previous boyfriend was very much into and had forced me into because I was being depressed I was a couch potato and didn't move very much being caught in my head as well rather than my body he forced me to run and it really served something because I had the first glimpse of something beyond myself a transcendent experience Uh, that together with uh, one attempt at TM um, and uh, a small dose of psychedelics, all of which gave me a glimpse of something much vaster than me and my black hole. I couldn't put it into context. I didn't understand it. I had no framework. I had no support system and I had no, 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 no reference point. But what it did serve was to completely collapse or at least to a certain point that was necessary at that time, my uh, need for approval from the world in terms of my academic success. So from that point on, I became a nobody. I was penniless. I was homeless. And I devoted myself to um, exploring aspects of my emotional self, my consciousness in ways that I, that hadn't been accessible to me before. So, so this was a very ripe time for exploration, uh, for the inner journey. I did end up in India. I did end up on the path of meditation. I did end up on the path of Tantra. I did end up um, uh, with, on, on the path of 
body work, breath work. There were many modalities that I explored. In the meantime, my outer circumstances were were impoverished to a great degree, but none of that mattered because something was being enriched on the inside. As that took um, root and I started to work with some of these modalities and even teach some of them in my own uh, format. Life went on and I came up against uh, un, un, or rather surprisingly, because I wasn't, uh, by then I, I'd done a lot of inner work and I'd done a lot of meditation and I was actually in a very, uh, let's say, peaceful and open inner space and I wasn't really looking for anything but something happened in which as I was living on my own and I'd had a major relationship breakup uh, a year or two earlier um, which which had been resolved but something else started to happen was that a more subtle existential barrenness aloneness singularity started to reveal itself and this was very unexpected it was very subtle because it had nothing to do with my circumstances it had nothing to do with loss or personal wounding although that probably um had led to this yeah so it's not that it had nothing to do with it but in that in that period of time, it, it wasn't caught, it seemed to be causeless. But as this revealed itself to me, I, I, I had a whisper of the suicidal pull that had happened 20 years earlier. You know, by now I was in my early 40s. And I recognized it. And I recognized this. This, this very strong magnetic pull to obliterate myself. But I recognized that I wasn't trying to or wanting to obliterate myself as a human being, as a living entity, but rather the identity of me, of self, as a separate entity. Now, I didn't have any non-dual um, teachings around me at that time so I had none of the conceptual framework for this and yet that's what was really happening this um, this need to discover what is more real what is more true than me <laughs> and the story of me and the way that I experienced it was that was as a separation from the totality, as a separation from God, even though I didn't have a, a particularly religious background other than in a conventional way, but, but God was the word that came to me. I, I, I somehow could, could sense what that is. And God was the totality. God was the whole of existence, everything, just the very fact of existence. And that somehow, I, me, stood outside of that in order for me to perceive or know existence or know the fact of existence. There must be 
a me, an I, something here that stands outside of that in order to know it. And that created such suffering. That created such a sense of separation. And it was very subtle, but very profound. And it's, I, I, I sensed that I'd reached the core of something. And this went on for several months. So at some point, I, I couldn't stand it anymore. So I, I, I really sort of literally surrendered to the floor and said, show me, or I want to know, or what is more real than this, more true than this? And if this is all there is, then I give myself to this. If this is eternity, the eternity, the eternal experience of existence, then, then, then I give myself to this completely. It was a deep surrender. It was a giving up of something. And in that moment, a number of things happened. <laughs> I talk about this in my first book, Radical Awakening, where I describe what was revealed energetically, which was, was also a very visceral and visual and auditory experience, but none of that really matters because it was really what it, what it brought me to. And what it brought me to was that as I was sitting on my uh, living room sofa, I noticed the tendency of mind to move away from being absolutely nakedly here without any grasping for the experience. I noticed how that tendency would arise as a habitual impulse to simply go to the kitchen and get a cup of tea or a glass of water or go to uh, the bookshelf and read a book. And I lived on my own, so there were many things that I could do at home. Reading books was my favorite. But I noticed them not as natural, intelligent impulses, but avoidance tactics. And again, it was very subtle. So I, I, I chose, and it felt like a, a momentous uh, shift of attention, to not follow that movement and in not following that movement the existential void which had been the source of suffering the the chasm of existence and me revealed itself and it felt like it was going to swallow me up and it was horrific it would swallow me up and i wouldn't exist and that was horrific that was the suffering could i Wanting interrupt to, for a minute? Yeah. Could I interrupt for a minute? Sure. Was this all happening without a major physical plane teacher? Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. I, I have not had many teachers. I've, I've experienced many paths and many modalities. And I spent time uh, at Osho's ashram in India. So in some ways, I would say he was my main teacher, but more, more, more as the frequency field that I experienced at that ashram, which was very um, 
it, it, it unraveled many of my defenses and opened me to a, a more uh, uh, unending surrender and unconditional acceptance of life. So I would say that was my primary teaching or certainly the one that shifted something for me, but I've never followed any particular uh, teacher or teaching. So all of this was happening by itself and all of this was happening without the spiritual con conceptual understanding or framework or language. And remember that I was living in England then, and it was the, uh, I can't remember, but I was in my 40s, so maybe it was the late 90s or the early, early millennium. And really there were, there were it, it's not like the West Coast of America. So it was not ripe with spiritual teachers. It was not ripe with non-duality. The term non-duality didn't, I don't think it even existed. Uh, and I may be wrong, but it certainly wasn't in my field of experience. Uh, uh, and, and, I, and I had followed many different, you know, I read widely and all of that. So I might be wrong, but certainly it wasn't uh, accessible to me. Right. So, like you, didn't have a, you haven't had a relationship in this life with a teacher that we would say there was a deep uh, transmission. No, okay. absolutely not. No, no. And, and, I, I was on my own. <laughs> I was on my own, me and God. <laughs> and, and I wanted to say that um, in my experience, um, it's rare. It's rare for, it happens, but I would say to the viewers and the listeners, don't count on it. It's, it's rare to be able to realize profound levels of self-realization in a lifetime without at least one major uh, living spiritual teacher. But it, it can happen, and it does happen. And obviously your soul was very ripe. I mean, there are many people who had very opening LSD experiences that, that they were either unwilling or unable to integrate into their personhood. And, you know, obviously, you know, you hinted at it earlier. Obviously, your soul had its own ripening, its own timetable that was obviously catalyzed maybe by certain external events, but certainly the external events were not the source of that motion. And um, so I want to say that. And the yeah. reason I want to say that is that at least in California or even in the West, there's this idea of independence that is really to a large extent coming from an unconscious motivation to avoid the domination of something. And there are many people in the West who... Um, who are not open to a student-teacher spiritual relationship that can be very valid and quickening and, and therefore don't even have the discernment or the interest to follow it. And um, so I wanted to say that because um, a, a, a truly valid spiritual teacher is very, on the physical plane can be very valuable, very valuable, can save you a lot of time, yeah. 
can keep you from a lot of dead ends um, and can be a living example for you, can hold you, can provide a sangha of community support. And so uh, I thought it was important to mention that so that, uh, so that the viewers and the listeners have that balanced context. I, I totally agree and thank you for, for bringing that forward. I think that is true. And certainly in my role now, many years later, um, as spiritual teacher, I, I see that a lot. And it's, it's tricky and it's subtle and we have to navigate that with ourselves. And um, it, it doesn't just happen, even though I'm making it sound like it just happened. Um, there is a ripeness of the soul. And, and I, say, I would say that that ripeness was there right from the beginning, which is why every circumstance of my life served to, to, um, to break the shell of separate self. Um, there was a deep longing to, 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 to know, um, to come home, to know God, which was actually a very... Uh, uh, prevalent in me as as a child, even even through those traumas, where I I, I would I would fall into silence um, very easily, and I mean an inner silence of of union um, easily. Although that got covered up later, so there's a ripeness of a soul. There is also a lot of preparation that happened, which I call the fertilizer for insight, discernment, clarity honesty and surrender that happened through all the modalities that I tried. So they were my teachers in that sense. Um, And uh, in, from the, when I came out of uh, my experience with, with Osho and the ashram, um, even though he wasn't in his body, he'd just left. um, uh, I, I gave myself to life. Life was my teacher. Life was the guru. And that wasn't a bypass. That wasn't an avoidance. It, everything served as uh, an invitation to a deeper intimacy, which is why this experience that I'm describing followed quite quickly uh, from that point on. And from my perspective now, yes, a, a living embodied human being that is in the role of spiritual teacher um, is almost vital on the path, uh, especially today as more and more ordinary people like myself are, are embodying that role um, and it's not such a, a, a mystery or... Uh, as it was many years ago where the Indian guru lived in on the mountaintop and seemed to be beyond humanity and uh, didn't integrate with life. And so it would have this mysterious feel to it or this mystical feel or this transcendent feel. And it's very different now. So it serves, it serves a purpose. So very much. So in where I was in my geography and my history, I didn't have access to an ordinary spiritual teacher (laughs) in that sense to a human being that could that what that could one could be close to or or surrendered to or uh, open to or intimate with it 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 really was at least in my experience uh, somebody like Osho who who 
I wouldn't even dream of wanting to be like him. <laughs> so it was not, yeah, in my framework. So anyway, all this stuff happened. And um, if I may just finish that little thread as, uh, of meeting the existential void, it was from that moment on that all separation dissolved. So the core wound of existential separation from that moment on, I was both obliterated and I merged into oneness. And from, I, I didn't, again, it wasn't uh, put into any framework. And, and, and I think this part's important, David, because there was no real framework for it, at least not in the non-dual or enlightenment uh, framework. I didn't grasp the experience and own it. But what I noticed from that moment on was that there was no more victim story in any of my experience of life. I was no longer a victim of the need to find love or be loved. I was no longer, which was primary, uh, you know, very prevalent in my life before that. I was no longer a victim of needing to experience only good things, good feelings, positive thinking, peace, and such like. The pendulum would swing. Reality lived in the everyday life has a polarity to it, but I found there was no need to, to manipulate or hold on or change any of it, which means that somehow the polarity dissolved and everything was simply as it is. So a great acceptance and openness and intimacy. I was no longer standing outside of life, even on the subtle level, experiencing life, but that life is me experiencing itself. And this was a very visceral experience. And I noticed it as the days went by, as the months went by, and as the years went by. And it was only after some time that I almost sort of caught myself. I thought, wow, I think this is enlightenment. And even that, so what? So what? So life continued to be lived. And again, waves would come where I, I would, could in the early years, because this was about 15 years ago, in the early years, really see really feel, really experience, really know that everything was grace. That there is no God outside of me. There is no reality outside of me. There is no me. And yet all of it is one. And that allowed everything to be okay. <laughs> really okay. Really, really okay. And such it's like there were no more defenses. There were no more resistances. There were no more um, avoidances. So such intimacy with life, with experience, that even the word intimacy is a barrier to that. And that's how life was lived, which meant there was tenderness, which meant there was openness, which meant there was presence, which meant there was nakedness. 
as a human being, I found that I became more tender and more naked over the years. And after, I think it was about 10 years, I felt a tiny shoot, because there was no agenda around this, a tiny shoot. I had written my first book, but then writing is my thing. So I wrote it, it got published, you know, luckily. Um, But there was no attempt to follow that up with anything. This little shoot said to me, go and speak. Speak to whom? And speak about what? Just go and speak. So I hired a room in England, in a, in a small seaside town, and uh, for two hours, and I sat on a chair and I spoke. I didn't speak, actually, for, for some time. I, 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 I spoke from silence, and this was new to me. I didn't use my mind. And as that happened, and it was very tender, and it was very shaky, and it was very uncertain, something started to happen. And as people came over the years, I learnt from their questions all the little nooks and crannies and tricks along the path that in retrospect somehow had not been there for me yeah perhaps because of this rightness and yet I could totally understand and so that's where I am now (laughs) So I want to ask a question just to clarify my own understanding about your journey. So after this radical awakening, most of us still have an awareness of negative ego patterns and tendencies, but we have a way of being with them that allows them over time to to resolve themselves. I wasn't clear from your story whether that was part of your experience or whether um, that whole level of existential challenge was gone for you. So when you say ego tendencies, you mean defenses? That's part of it. Like, for example, there are many people that have had awakenings, but then when they get into the crucible of intimate relationships they have a lot of uh, limiting beliefs and identities and repressed emotions that come up and they still have to work them through. And I didn't know if the experience that you had uh, uh, catalyzed that same kind of common process or whether you had some kind of miraculous kind of healing where, where, where that wasn't, part of your life experience after that and it was only through your interaction with students that you developed the facility to guide people through that or did you have to go through that yourself post awakening yeah okay again a really good insightful (laughs) you know insight you know insight there um because yeah for me After the the awakening, all of that was gone. Wow. The main thing that happened, because relationship was one of my main areas of wounding, unsurprisingly given my history with my, my in my childhood, but relationship was my main main place of wounding. And after 
the awakening relationship because a relationship came into my life the man that i'm with now kavi we've been together for 15 years or so um when he came into my life there was a gap between the awakening and him coming into my life in that gap again i'm going to use the language that i used then for my understanding the only language that i i, I could use I, I don't necessarily use this language now, but I'm going to use it because it, it, it was important to me anyway. I was married to God. From the point of radical awakening, I was married to God. In other words, I was one with the totality. I was one with existence. That was my very real, visceral experience. So you were, a true, Which you were a true mystic. In, yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if I had any framework, it was the yeah. mystic framework. Yeah. I had no need for love because I am love. And I knew that category. I didn't know that before at all. I wouldn't understand what that meant. I am love. If I am love, I have no need. And I haven't had any need from that point on. There is no agenda. There is no need. There is no dependency. There is no looking for anything outside of myself to give me love in order to make myself feel loved, which is what I was looking for and what we all look for from the moment that we're born. <laughs> so I would say that's a very powerful distinction because most people's awakening is not to that radical extent. Most people have a glimpse of possibility and it gets into their DNA at some level, but then after awakening, and they go back to the crucible of relationships and businesses and bodies. Um, most people have get, get triggered quite a bit yes. to develop uh, a tremendous skill set and commitment about how to be with that in a way that allows the transformative process to continue to unfold. And so I can see, given your unusual radical awakening, I can see how important it was for you to have interaction with many students. And I can see how you would have been guided to speak and to become a teacher um, so that you could develop that compassion and that facility. Yes. And, and so, so yes, and that's what my whole teaching is about now. As you know, Embodied Enlightenment, my book talks all about this because this has been my experience in speaking with hundreds and thousands of people is that this part of the journey, the embodiment, the uh, integration, the living of it in relationship, and we're in relationship to everything in the world, is the part that is very often missed out, bypassed, not spoken about, is confused, and so on. So yes, all of that uh, experience and speaking with people and the time it took for it to totally mature in me, um, to be able to express it and bring it into the world was necessary. And I'm just gonna add another factor to this. Because even though that transformation was radical, which is why I called it radical awakening, it was not just a non-dual realization of the absolute. It was the absolute fully embodied as love. And that happened just like that. Yes, but I also put this part of the equation into it. 
But 15 years prior to that, let's say, was it 15 years? Yes, about 15 years prior to that, were totally dedicated from the moment that my academic career collapsed to the point of this radical awakening, or a little prior to that, a year or two prior to that, was dedicated to the unraveling of energetic blockages in this vehicle. I understand. And I th- that I th- was such a cleansing, yeah. such a purging, that many of the traumas, the wounds, the uh, codependencies, the patterns um, were seen and resolved. However, so there was a lot of preparation that happened. It wasn't just a sudden, it was a sudden flip, but there'd been a lot of preparation that happened so that when the, the shift happened, it could be embodied in, a, in an empty vessel or as empty as it was going to get. Having mm-hmm. said that, I still had defenses. I was still a very shy, uh, very self-conscious person. After the shift, that self-consciousness could no longer have any, uh, couldn't be upheld anymore. Yeah, And that was the journey for me, for that self-consciousness, that shyness, that tendency to withdraw and be introvert and to be insecure as a human being, as a personality, couldn't be upheld unconsciously anymore. So I had to, over time, over the 10, 50, over 10 years, give myself to the world a little more, reveal myself more and more and more, so that that part of the defensive structure could dissolve over time. And that's where I'm at. <laughs> That's beautiful. And I'm so glad that the conversation is drilling down to this level because one trap I've seen with spiritual teachers is spiritual teachers who've had a path similar to yours where they've had a gradual path for a while and then that that prepared them uh, psychophysiologically. And then they had a radical awakening. But then in their teaching... They teach as if only the radical awakening part was important. And that creates a false, in my opinion, creates a false promise for 99.999% of their students. And then when it doesn't happen, the students blame themselves. And I have seen that. And... And I think it leads to a tremendous amount of suffering on the part of the student and also a tendency to either go through a tremendous amount of spiritual bypass or else to give up. And, you know, the path, which was a combination of what I would call a gradual path and then a radical awakening. I think there's a lot to be said for that. you know, my path was kind of reversed. I had a radical awakening at a younger age. And it was interesting. Uh, I don't know if you've encountered this with people who have had radical awakenings uh, at a fairly early age in their life. Mine was around age 19. The, uh, The awakening was very interesting because on one hand, I knew who I was and I could see 
who I had been that I was, and I could see the structure of mind, I could see the structure of ego, it was very radical awakening. And so part of that radical awakening was, was an awareness that on another level, I was still a totally screwed up 19-year-old with character flaws, repressed emotions, uh, and all sorts of things. And so part of that awakening was a knowing that I had a lot of work to do, but, and along with that was a total faith that that would happen. And that I didn't have to worry about that. I just needed to uh, be responsible and play my part in that unfoldment. And so my life has been lived backwards from most people in the sense that most people have a more gradual path and then maybe some of them have a radical opening. I, mine was backwards. And I think there are advantages and disadvantages to that. Um, but I think your path is probably more common. And... Um, in terms of the order, uh, but I think what's uncommon about your your experience is the depth of your radical awakening and the fact that it had uh, an, almost an instantaneous uh, integration all the way down to the uh, psychophysiological level. Uh, I think, you know, that had a lot to do with your soul's ripeness and all the passionate work that you had done for all of those years. And so I've never had this conversation with another spirit teacher. And I think it's very exciting to be, um, to be sharing these ideas with you. Yeah. I think that, um, yes, there's a tendency in, spiritual teachings, uh, spiritual circles, to focus on the awakening um, and to point to the awakened state or the awakened consciousness. And then, of course, the, the, the students, the participants, the followers want that. And either they get it because it happens in various ways and then it's gone or they hold on to it and all sorts of confusion comes. And then there's, with that comes the projection onto the teacher about, and usually it's an unconscious projection of perfection uh, that they live in this state all the time. That's a state mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And that's where I see a lot of confusion both in newcomers and even in long-time spiritual seekers. I have come to the point naturally, organically, where I actually very rarely speak about that because it's not up to me and it's not up to you and it's not up to anyone or anything uh, to make that awakening happen it really happens through ripeness through grace in that sense we, we we we're not in charge but what i find more helpful is to talk about all the different nuances possibilities and the very immediate capacity we each have to open to life to open to the experience and 
whether that's before an awakened experience or after an awakened experience, it doesn't matter. I hear you. I mean, yeah. in my experience of teaching for several decades, and of course I have to, to say that my teaching has been limited mostly to people in the United States, so I, I'm not generalizing to other cultures. Maybe you can tell me if this fits also for other cultures. But at least with the American mind, um, one of the most difficult things for my students to, it takes them year, most of them years, and they think they've got it, but they don't, is the ability to not only be aware of their inner experience, but to actually accept it. Mm. The, the idea of acceptance is somehow hijacked by the ego in a way where it doesn't really become available for my students for a while in general, that um, for a while they're still very caught up in the idea of um, either or types of ego-based logic systems where the ability to let something be without making up a story about it, without moving toward it, without freezing, mm. without moving away from it, without rationalizing it, um, is a capacity that is there, but it's covered up by so much identification and misperception that I would say for people that have a true desire, that that is for most people the major hindrance. Because once they can actually be with their experience, a couple of things happen. One is the resistance goes away, and so a flow starts happening. And the other thing that happens is they get at a very deep level that they, who they are fundamentally is not their experience. And that is, in my perception, a critical realization that in a way changes everything from an existential point of view. And I find it's a pretty easy, once they get the hang of that, it's pretty easy for them to move toward taking more responsibility for their experience, pretty easy to move toward uh, true forgiveness. It's pretty easy to move toward real gratitude. It's pretty easy to move toward... Um, greater discernment, making better choices. But most of my students, I have to say, looking back over the decades, um, that's been the major bugaboo. Yes, I, I, think, I think that's it. And, and, and then my, my question is, can that level of acceptance of one's experience can that be taught can that be practiced and 
you know, it's like, why is it so difficult? Why is that the preventative? And, or is that something that really comes with some kind of ripening where the suffering of non-acceptance becomes so great, it becomes greater than the avoidance of acceptance. And, and can anyone do anything about that? Well, I mean, I think that's what ends up happening is people start realizing the tremendous suffering of non-acceptance. I mean, that is what ends up happening. Um, one of the feedback I've gotten from students is that I developed a meditation that I recorded that I've gotten good feedback on that said it's really helped them. And it's a very simple kind of variation on a Ramana Maharshi meditation where they, I simply direct people to different aspects of their experience, have them become aware of it, and then invite them to allow it to be exactly the way that it is and exactly the way that it isn't, and then expand their space to just let it all be. And then I move on to another aspect of existential reality. And, you know, I created it and I thought it would be helpful, but I've gotten some feedback from people like, wow, you know, that's like, that was like the game changer for me. And um, so I would agree with you that, um, I mean, occasionally there's, you know, occasionally people grow by revelation, but most of the time the, the impetus is intense suffering. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and my students who stuck with me, what usually happens after several years is they get to that point that you're describing where they haven't, they're not, it's not because I told them anymore. It's because they cognize for themselves that, oh yeah, every time I resist my experience, I suffer. And every time I truly allow it to be, I don't. That's it. That's the tipping point. That's the tipping point. So everything, yeah, everything that we do as spiritual teachers or, you know, examples or whatever it is, is to support that tipping point. And I'm interested in learning from you and other teachers, as well as my own inner guidance, if there's a way of being or seeing that I'm being and seeing that I don't know that I'm being or seeing that I could shift in myself that would allow my students to come to that point quicker. Um, I would be very interested in that. I'm open to that. Um, But on the other hand, I know that there is a soul's ripening as well, but it's an, it's, it's, it's a, it's a question I'm living inside of these days. Yeah, I, 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 I you know, I, I've, again, I've, I've, come, I've come to a point and there's a lot of places I've come to in very recently or more recently um, is that because I tend not to provide, I mean, I don't provide methods or practices or, uh, and certainly all of it is useful, but it's just not the way it's, it's moving in me. I, I find, and I have found, uh, again, as, as recent years have, have rolled along, that really be, there's an invisible thing that happens. I never used to believe in transmission. Um, 
And it's certainly not a transmission that happens by anyone doing anything or having power over anyone or anything like that. I'm really beginning to understand what transmission is. I've come to see and realize that there is an invisible frequency that is emanated by each living entity. And when I am that fully, without agenda, without the need for power or without the need for approval or without the need for anything, but simply purely innocently being this, it seems to have an impact. Yeah, definitely. definitely. How that happens, I have absolutely no idea. I don't even think about it. I'm saying this now because we're having this conversation, but that seems to be more powerful than anything else. The only place that I can really, really say that, well, as far as I can possibly know, um, where it has had an impact is in my relationship. In, and that's because uh, I'm an, in an intimate relationship. Uh, you know, intimate living situation with somebody over 15 years. My students come and go. I don't, I don't live with them. So it's not quite as palpable, but in relationship, there is when, when at least one person is living as this without trying to be the spiritual teacher or just simply being the innocence that, that I am. Yeah. The openness that I am that transforms everything by itself. I find that that way, that that, when you're being that way, it reminds me of uh, a quote in the Bible where a lot of people don't understand this saying that Jesus said, according to the Bible, but I think it's profound. He said, I come not as the peacemaker, I come as the sword. And... I think I have a deep understanding of what he was saying there, that his light was so bright, his love was so strong, that everything came into sharp relief in his presence, that people who were attracted to the light uh, were, were illuminated, and people who were too frightened of the light either t- ran away or tried to kill him. And so my experience is that in the presence of the kind of authenticity you're talking about. It's very much a sword and that you can't control the response. That, uh, and the response can be very dramatic, dramatic and traumatic. Uh, and um, without, my experience is that it, it, it helps the student to have a, cognitive uh, awareness of what I think Jesus meant by that comment, because otherwise it can be taken so personally that it can lead to a lot of unnecessary suffering. And so my response to your last comment is, is that, is that, it's not that the other person in the relationship will necessarily match you. They could, but not necessarily. 
And what I hear you saying is that in the frequency field of love's intelligence, which is what this is, everything that is not that, everything that is an obstruction to that, a defense mechanism to, you know, in response to that, in reaction to that, everything that has been conditioned that is not love's intelligent openness falls away. It falls away either through, you know, a trigger uh, or it falls away because the other is ripe for that falling away. But everything gets amplified. And certainly in my experience, not theoretically, but as a human being living this life in this world, both in an intimate relationship and in various relationships with the world, uh, students, people I speak with and so on and so forth and interact with, that is my experience. Yeah. That is my experience. And in that sense, all I can do is surrender to that. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's where the, uh, the seeming paradox, although it's not, it's really one thing, but from the mind's logic, it's a paradox. That's why total commitment and total non-attachment is so important. Um, so I'd like to segue the conversation at this point uh, to something we were talking a little bit about before we started recording. And that is my awareness, both in my own process and in my more advanced students and in my perception of other advanced students on the path, is that many of us are at a point where we have the cognitive framework to support authenticity. We have a, a heart that supports love and authenticity and we have worked through a critical mass of heart wounds and what many of us are dealing with now are shall we say karma both personal and ancestral and collective karma and wounding that i would call more at the instinctual level issues that are classically related to first, second, and third chakra issues, survival, the body, uh, sexuality, pleasure, romantic relationships, boundaries, belonging. Um, and in my experience, for most of the advanced light workers, much of the cutting edge work they are doing both for their own healing and to be able to serve in the way that they truly want to, is being focused more than ever before, at least in modern history, or at least in my lifetime, on an awareness of the blockages that are correlated with these chakras. And because these chakras have so much to do about being a human being in the world, a lot of the traditional spiritual paths don't have that much to say about it. And so a lot of times people default to approaches for dealing with being in the world that I don't think go deep enough. 
a lot of the self-help stuff, a lot of the metaphysical stuff, a lot of the psychological stuff, a lot of the natural healing stuff. And so where my personal and professional interests lie these days is exploring and filling that gap. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to interview you because, you know, embodied enlightenment, what could be more apropos to that uh, inquiry that I'm in the midst of? And so I wanted to put out those thoughts and just kind of turn it over to you. And if you could uh, just take the conversation where you'd like to take it, given that that's my area that I'd like to focus on. The issues, <clears throat> the, the issues of being in, in the world or the issues of the world are, are really not, not different or separate from the issues of traditional inquiry of who am I? Or what am I? Once the false identity of, of self, of me, has been recognized and that recognition come, comes in, in, in in this embodied way that we've been speaking of up until now. So, so that, <coughs> excuse me, so that the core wound of separation of me and the totality of existence, as is revealed through the world, is, is finally dissolved. Then really that there's no question <laughs> um, about how should I be in the world and how should I respond to the world. Again, in my experience, and I can only speak from that perspective, once that really has been filtered all the way, and, and you're talking of chakras, so if it filters down from the heart into the solar plexus, into the into the sacral and into the, um, the base, yes, the root, then who we are in the world, what we are in the world, how we respond to all the issues of um, boundaries and um, uh, the pushes and pulls of the world, how we are in our, in our, in the sense of belonging, in the sense of uh, uh, social, political, economic structures. Really, there's no more question. It happens innocently, organically, again, as love's intelligence, as love's intelligent response that doesn't have the need to protect me and mine in that. And, and yet, guess, it takes I'm care of the body. I guess what I'm saying is a lot of the traditional methods of inquiry I find don't lend itself for most people 
to access what they need to access with this lower chakra material. And most people's awakening are not as full-bodied as yours. And so they have a lot of these unfinished business in these chakras. And uh, other than by just pure transmission of student mm -hmm. intuitive, do you have any suggestions for practices or inquiries that help to open up the the map room at those levels like mm. you know obviously one thing that could be done would be a non-cognitive type of breath work type of thing to bring some of that material up you could do certain types of body postures that would tend to bring cellular memory traumatic cellular memory up to the surface uh, i think this is an important conversation to have i yeah I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I think that perhaps the, the entry point, the entry point to, to um, if you like, working with these, with these blockages on, on this deeper level is, is first of all to, the, the inquiry is whenever, whenever somebody is uh, reactive towards the world whatever's happening in the world whether that world is our relationship our family our our society our yeah, country our nation our, yeah and so on and so forth um when whenever there's a there's a reactiveness to that and that reactiveness will be revealed by this shouldn't be happening uh, and yeah. there's a lot of this shouldn't be this way, this shouldn't be happening when we look out on the world. That's the entry point. That's the entry point. As long as there's a shouldn't be happening, then we are caught in the duality of right and wrong and self-righteousness. As long as there is self-righteousness, then our perception is not true. It's not clarity. Yes. It's not love. It's not openness. And Wherever there is self-righteousness, there's a hardness. Yes. There's a I tightness. Gonna, I was going to say, of course, that shouldn't be happening stance can, is also directed to one's inner experience, the content of one's inner experience. I shouldn't yes. have that desire. Yes. I shouldn't have that feeling. I, I shouldn't, shouldn't feel that, that rage. I shouldn't. I shouldn't yes. Yes. And I mean, so on. I mean... Uh, probably historically, probably 80% of the students and patients that I've had in this lifetime have been female. And not that this doesn't occur for men, but there are certain cultural conditioning factors that certainly contribute to it in women. Um, you can almost go to the bank on the fact that there's going to be a tremendous amount of repressed and suppressed anger and rage simply because it's completely socially unacceptable and therefore internalized as psychologically unacceptable. And so I think my comment about your initial comment is number one, totally right on, great way to have the red light go on, that yeah, this shouldn't be happening, but also to say that that, that, that strategy or that approach is equally valid, not only the searchlight to one's perception of the world, 
but also one searchlight to one's inner process. Yes. So that's a great way of saying it. The red light, yeah? Very often, most often, in fact, probably always, <laughs> that red light is not noticed. If that's noticed, and if it's noticed and recognized as a red light, and there's acceptance of that, first of all, and not denial of that, <laughs> yeah, then that provides the doorway. The possibility then is of letting it go. It is possible, perhaps, to soften, to turn towards tenderness rather than hardness, to notice the sensation, the visceral feeling in mind, in body, in, in emotion of self-righteousness and to ask oneself, is that what I really want? Is it preferable to the tenderness that is revealed when I soften around that so so yeah i mean i could speak more about that yeah. but that's that's possibly the the entry point very often people say that they are wanting to let go of that tightness but don't know how point to that and speak around that and explore that over and over again and then i'm going to jump here to what would, at least in an ideal um, uh, vision of it, is, doesn't always happen. But that's the point that where energy work would come in. That's the point where deep breath work, where shaking, where primal, where uh, really giving oneself permission to experience energetically the rage, the self uh, righteousness, the injustice, the grief, the every the horror, everything, and, and to really experience that, and to to through that experience to come out the other side, and it's okay. It's like the storm. You've moved through the storm, and there is openness, because so what most people are frightened of is experiencing the storm. So, when your role as a teacher and guide. Uh, do you, will you sometimes spontaneously recommend that to a student or does it, is that, has that not been the type of conversation that's been coming up? I, you know, over the years, I've, I've sort of toyed around with the possibility of providing some kind of energetic uh, framework, a framework for, for energetically experienced, ex experiencing these, these sort of dimensions I'm speaking of. I, I, on a practical level, it's, it's not easy because I can't be the facilitator of that and everything. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like a, that's a different role. No, but Do I, mean, I recommend people to go? Yeah. Well, that doesn't really work very well either. For a start, I'd have to know somebody that I would totally trust who could take people in that direction. And more importantly than that, I found that people just don't follow up. You cannot tell somebody what to do. You cannot tell somebody they need to experience some breath work. You cannot tell somebody they need to go and do a primal or whatever we might call anything. It just doesn't work. What I found really works 
or works better is to invite people into tenderness because everybody in their heart in their soul in their deepest being longs for that when i speak to that something automatically opens and i speak to that over and over and over again it is an energetic experience in itself and if that is that coming home on that level is really ripe in somebody then it opens and it flowers that's a and, very um that's a very beautiful feminine approach yes i mean feminine in the deep sense of yes. the use of the word like the way that the way that water eventually will grind down a rock yes uh, it, it's very i understand that's your way that's just my way because nothing else is really available to me. And, and, and I have had people that know me and know my history. I don't mean my childhood history, but my, my history of uh, experience of different modalities. And, and I've worked as a breath worker myself. And I have worked in this way with people in the past um, who, who know me on that level have often said, why don't you integrate that with your teaching? And, and really, I, I, I don't find it any more effective and mm -hmm. it's just not, it's just, it's not your way. It's just not the way. I, I think it's useful. Now, that's what I loved about Osho was that he did integrate all of that. There was body work, there was energetic experience, there was primal catharsis, so that you could experience that and go deeper into the who am I. To me, that's the most beautiful synthesis. Do I have an ashram where I can do that and have therapists who can work in that way to support this work? No. Therefore, I, it's not being offered. That to me is the greatest synthesis and I haven't found any other spiritual teacher or leader who uses that particular synthesis. That's an ideal of mine. It's an it's ideal. An ideal. <laughs> it's an ideal of mine to eventually work in a setting where there are a critical mass of complementary practitioners who are rooted in radical spirituality yes. or mature practitioners. Um, um, that is an ideal that I've held for a long time and I haven't given up on it. Um, I have formed a informal alliance of practitioners that I have a lot of respect for. And so I have had a different experience than you. I have found that the appropriate referral at just the right time with the right context, I have found to be very useful. But I, yes. respect, I respect your way and it's working for you and your students and that's the most important thing. Yeah, no, and I, I, I totally get, like I said, that's, that's an ideal vision, an ideal synthesis. And at the same time, I've had to surrender that as an ideal right. myself because anything that comes from my idea of how it should be really is not is not the way i have to give i have to surrender that and trust that something else is happening and the more i give myself and, and it really is like a, an ongoing unknownness then really something quite transformative in itself starts seems to start to happen only through feedback and response so i think there are many ways i think there are many modalities either with a structure or without a structure and i don't think that one is 
is better or worse than the other. So I think as, as, the, as the frequency field holder, if you like, that from which yeah. the emanation comes, in your case, from, from you and your teaching and me and my teaching, all we can do is be authentically uh, true to that and how it moves in us. If it moves in a way that yeah. creates a structure, then so be it. If it moves in a way that does not have a structure, then so be it. Because who am I to know which is the best way for anybody? And one of the things I love is... And who knows, maybe we're breaking new ground here, is I love that we're having this conversation and that this conversation has the, the love and the depth that it's having. To me, that's one of the most exciting things of all because if, if, if we're ever going to live in spiritual community, um, we might as well model it and, uh, and be it. And that's very exciting to me. Um, uh, what are you up to these days? What's on the cutting edge on your journey these days? What are you interested in? What are you, where's your energy naturally going these days? Well, it seems to be going outwards into the world. And, and I mentioned earlier that in some ways I'm a sort of natural introvert, although these days that doesn't have much, much meaning, meaning for me anymore. Um, introvert, extrovert, what does it all mean? But, but I, I, I do like silence and stillness and being alone. <laughs> I, I do like that. But I think that's being washed away as well I, I i feel that the 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 energy is in really giving myself to the world in whatever way it is being called for on a practical level what does that mean it means that i am teaching a lot more i'm traveling a lot more i'm being you know invited to to speak and to hold gatherings and retreats here there and everywhere Initially, uh, there was, you know, maybe a, a year and a half ago or so, there was some resistance to that in the sense that, oh, do I really have to, um, you know, and so on and so forth. But, you know, really, it's, it's being purified. It's being purified so that, that you know, this, 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 this vessel, this vehicle, this, this me here is just more and more empty and going with whatever is being called for and um and that means you know quite a lot of busyness <laughs> quite a lot of behind the scenes um decision making uh putting things together organizing and so on that more and more seems to just take care of itself i don't mean takes care of itself because somebody else does the you know does the tasks but more that there isn't a resistance to it. There isn't, um, uh, uh, yeah, there isn't a resistance to it. So actually all of it is very uh, much enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is joy in all of it. Doing, not doing, there is, no, there is no demarcation between that anymore. Do I need to be silent and still? Not very much. It, it's, it's like that that silence and stillness is always here. It's what pours into everything. Yeah. So where is it going? 
I have no idea. Okay. I, I can't hold a vision for it. I, I, it, it doesn't work for me. I, I am a visionary, but I respond to what unfolds in that vision. Um, at some point, there may be another book. I don't know. But, yeah. <laughs> well, it's obvious to me that your path, I, I, I'm feeling into your way. And uh, it's very much a a feminine path of surrender to motion, to yes. true motion in, through, yes. and as you. Yes. And uh, I honor that tremendously. Um, as we move toward wrapping this interview up, a couple of things I want to make sure happens. One is I want to make sure that you give out contact information for people that would like to uh, learn more about you and avail themselves of your gifts and presence and also I want to give you as much time as you like to share anything that you're moved to share in closing. Okay well let's start with the easy stuff. Um, my website www.amodama.com that's ma with a double a there you will find lots of videos and uh, all my books and uh, especially my recent book, Embodied Enlightenment. Um, all my events, which are uh, unfolding at a furious pace over this year. So there's events all over the US, East Coast, West Coast and in between. There is a contact form. I, I, I don't answer all personal emails. It's impossible unless it's very specific, but there is a contact form on my website. Um, uh, what else? What else can I say? <laughs> anything you'd like to say? Well, I want to thank you, first of all, for the 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 depth of this conversation to me also it's very important that we explore some of the subtleties of this path i think there's been well first of all coming to the u i'll say this i now live in the u.s with with cabby we we moved here a year and a half ago a year and four months ago so this is our home now and um we are very delighted and nourished by the the level of openness generosity and real willingness to explore on this on this path of inquiry that i have found being here uh just very rich especially on the west coast and i'm sure in uh, everywhere but um it's been it's been a real eye-opener and I, I just want to say that in context of us having this conversation, the level and depth of conversations today is, seems to be much more sophisticated and much more you know, profound and, and detailed and precise than ever before. And that excites me. That excites me. Like I, like I said earlier, it's not just about pointing to the awakened state. You know, that's easy. In some ways, awakening is easy. Yeah. yeah? I, I liken it a little bit to like falling off the log. At some point, you're going to roll off that log. And we can talk about the awakened state and what it is and how, you know. Uh, but, but that's not where the juice is. The juice is in how it's lived as a human being in this world because in the end it's very ordinary in the end it's about being human and it's not about being human and getting lost in our story of being human 
It's not about being human and getting lost in our reactivity. It is about being that openness whilst alive. And then life, death, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, that's where the conversation really is. And I'm sure there's many more areas that we could go to and there's many explorations. And I'm sure many of those conversations will continue to unfold over over coming years as the intensity of the world becomes uh, greater, becomes amplified, which it seems to be all over the world. And I think the world, the world is going to be our catalyst. The world is going to be our our, our doorway, our, the world is the invitation so that spirituality is not separate to our experience of the world. They're one and the same. Now, at some point, perhaps that will create some kind of uh, global or planetary or collective transformation. Who knows? Maybe it won't, but it seems to be heading that way. Yeah. And that's exciting and that's unknown. And, and yeah. Thank you. Uh, one thing I think would be if I could make a suggestion for your consideration for maybe what might be part of your work in the future is I think people would be very interested in getting a deeper sense of what your intimate relationship is like, what it's like to both as a possibility and as a living presence of what it's like to have an intimate, romantic, sexual relationship from an awakened state and the possibilities and the practices or the possible, <coughs> excuse me, the possible practices. And if there are any challenges, <coughs> excuse me, that come up along the way. I think uh, that would be very juicy. And uh, apropos to what many people are experiencing. So I don't know if you've had that request before, but I have a pretty good intuition and I have a sense that that would be very useful to a lot of people and people would be interested in it because um, it's important to them from where they're living. Thank you for that uh, request and suggestion. I am totally with you on that. I do talk about it, although not from about my relationship, but I do talk about relationship in my book. As you know, there's quite a few chapters on that. Um, it is an area that I have uh, a lot of experience in. Um, and I do have the feedback when, because Kavya accompanies me on, on most of my teachings. Oh. He, 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 he's actually the, the video recorder. He's also a fantastic musician, so he often accompanies with music, but he's also has his own uh, wisdom and deep love that is really the... the, the the complement to, to my feminine. So together, the, the amplification of this uh, 
of love's intelligence is is even greater. Yes. So although he doesn't actually teach with me because he doesn't have this role and has no desire or movement in him for this role, he certainly uh, complements it in terms of, of wisdom, love, and, and talent. So I feel intuitively um, that as time goes on, this will come more in, to the forefront. And, and the reason it hasn't is that I, I'm not really here to shout about my relationship. Um, but to, to speak of relationship um, is, is, I think, the, the, a very important aspect of this because, yes, people do want to know. That's where people struggle either before awakening, after awakening, during awakening, and relationship is the basis of the world. So I think that will come forwards more. Um, and perhaps as time goes on, hopefully not in the too distant future, there will be more dedicated perhaps um, teachings on that or a retreat based around relationship and so on and so forth. So absolutely. Thank you for that, because I, I really respond to the world's feedback. If that's what the world wants, then that's what I'll give them. You know, that's what I'll flow into. So that's beautiful suggestion. So, yes, absolutely. And many people learn at least partially by stories. Yes. And so the personal touch, uh, I think, can be appropriate without being uh, a, a barrier. Yes, without being indulgent. Yes. And and also, I think that what what happens is that when 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 and again, I can speak about caviar myself. So when we're we're together and people see that, whether it's in a teaching role or not a teaching role, it doesn't matter where they really. Uh, pick something up they really get it because of the, the interaction that happens so naturally and they're like wow can relationship be like that and then they start to ask questions that's exactly what I'm trying to say that's, to you is yeah. that is that if you could video that <laughs> you could share that and that may be all it takes yeah there's just just more people having the direct experience of the two of you being yourselves being together yes. almost like uh here's a phrase if you want it you can steal it almost like stereophonic infinity <laughs> yeah well david maybe you'll have us together on a show in the future <laughs> i would be honored and thrilled at the invitation consider the invitation made okay and, and when you're ready let me know Okay, that sounds good. That'll be a start and we'll see how we get on. That'd be lovely. So on that note, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host and also the producer of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm Dr. David, the cutting edge doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and transformation. And my very special guest today has been spiritual teacher and guide, Amodama. And um, just speaking for myself, it's just been a very rich, delightful conversation. And I am really excited about the next interview with her beloved and Amoda. And on that note, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. joining us for today's episode of freeing the body freeing the soul to access all episodes including show notes 
go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.